This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 this morning. Romans 8, and if you're new today, we have been in a series called Life in the Spirit. And, um, good to come up here. Okay, there we go. <laughs> um, the series has been Life in the Spirit. And so what we've been doing um, for a couple of months now is we have been looking at some of the primary texts in the New Testament that deal with the Holy Spirit. And we come now to really the home stretch of that series. And everything's been leading up to this. Because in Romans chapter 8, we have the chapter that has more references to the Holy Spirit than any other chapter in God's Word. In fact, far more references than any other chapter in the Bible. And so what we're going to do for several weeks is we are going to walk through the 8th chapter of Romans. And we're going to kind of take our time and just take it verse by verse. It is so incredibly rich. And so today we're going to begin with verses 1 through 4, which are about the fact that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. And so let's look together at Romans chapter 8 and verses 1 through 4 this morning. Follow along with me in your copy of God's Word. The Bible says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Father, we pray that You would use this incredibly rich text to work deeply in our lives. We pray that you would use this whole chapter in your word to take us to a new level in our understanding of the gospel, our understanding of the riches of your love, your grace, and what Jesus has done for us, and and what that means for our living today. And so... We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to understand your word today and rejoice in this incredibly good news and live it. Bless us now as we open your word and study it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In his classic book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer has sort of a classic chapter in the midst of that classic book. And it's called the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel. Well, Romans 8 not only gives us the heart of the gospel, 
but also how the gospel works in our hearts to transform us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Tim Keller says this about Romans 8, I have always believed that at the heart of Romans 8, you have the secret to really using the gospel in your heart to change yourself in a profound way. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, in the whole of the scriptures, the brightest and most lustrous and flashing stone or collection of stones is this epistle to the Romans and chapter 8 is the brightest gem in the cluster. Well, today we begin our journey through Romans 8 with verses 1 through 4, which are all about deliverance. We've been singing a lot today about freedom, about liberation. That's what these verses are about. What what has God done for us? Well, we see first of all here that He has granted us as Christians deliverance from the legal guilt of sin. Deliverance from the legal guilt of sin. Of sin. So Paul says in verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is a legal word. The Greek word comes from the world of the courtroom. And it means to rule against a defendant. To find them guilty as charged. The most sobering moment in any trial is when the verdict comes in and it is read and the guilty sentence is pronounced and the person is led away in handcuffs, condemned. But the Bible says that for us as believers, there is therefore now no condemnation. On January 1st, 1863, President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, the most famous sentence in that document, reads in part that all persons held as slaves shall be thenceforth and forever free. That is our status in Christ, forever free. All of our sins, past present and future, are all under the blood of Christ. There can never be any debt or charge now brought against us, which is exactly what Paul says later in this chapter. He says, beginning in verse 33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And his answer is no one and nothing, which is how he finishes this chapter. He says, beginning in verse 38, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This chapter begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. And everything in between is meant to assure us 
of who we are in Christ and His great love. No condemnation. No separation. There can never be any condemnation for a child of God. Why? Because Christ our Savior has taken our condemnation in our place. Now unfortunately, there are many Christians who are fuzzy on this. And it's tragic. And, and they, they either they don't completely understand it or they don't believe it. And if you don't really understand it, or if you don't believe it, that there is no condemnation for you, then what is going to happen in your Christian life is that you're going to find yourself feeling like you're moving in and out of condemnation, depending on your performance. But the Bible says that it's not about our performance. It's about the performance of Jesus for us. It is not about what we do. It is about what Christ has done. And because of Christ, because of His finished work, there is now no condemnation for the believer. There is no condemnation. There can never be condemnation for the believer. Now, what about the fact that the Bible tells us to confess our sins? And to ask for God's forgiveness. I mean, even as Christians, right? That's the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us of our trespasses. So even as Christians, we ask God's forgiveness. But, but listen, here is how we should think about that. When my kids sin against me, and they come to me and they say, Dad, I'm sorry. They are not asking for me to readmit them to the family. They are, not, they are not saying, hey, Dad, if I do better, can you love me again? Because they know that they could never do anything that could make me stop loving them. They know that they could never do anything that would separate them from my love. Uh, they, are, they will always be my beloved children. That is not a con- condition upon their behavior. Nothing can break that. Now, can they do some things that could hurt our relationship? Yes. Can they do some things that could damage the intimacy of our relationship? Yes. Okay. And that's the way that we should think about confession as Christians. That's the way that we should think about asking for God's forgiveness. We're not asking Him, Father, could you love me again if I do better? Father, could you readmit me to the family? No, we're not. That's not what we're asking. Okay, it's just that we've sinned against love and we don't want our relationship with the Lord to be uh, cluttered, you know, or hindered, you know, in in any way. Okay, that's what's going on. Uh, That's how we should think about, you know, confession and asking for forgiveness as, as Christians. Now listen, it's really vital that we get straight on this. Because if we're not, then it's going to impact every moment of our Christian lives You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, Christians must never, ever, ever feel condemnation. If you are Christians, your sins and mine, past sins, present sins, and future sins have already been dealt with once and forever. Have you realized that? 
Do you realize that most of your troubles today are due to your failure to understand the truth of Romans 8.1? Now, if we don't completely understand it, if we don't completely understand the fact that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, then two things are going to happen. First, if you don't understand Romans 8.1, you will live your life with an underlying sense of guilt and shame. Even if it's not there on the surface, it will be a constant drain and drag just beneath the surface. This, 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 under, this sense of guilt and shame. And what that does is it will, it will hinder you from living with the joy and the freedom and the confidence that you should have as a believer, as a child of God. It will hinder your ability to glorify God. It will hinder your ability to be a, a joyous witness for Him. The other thing that it will do, if you don't completely understand Romans 8.1, is that it will actually hinder your ability to obey God. Now, that's counterintuitive, I know, because we think that, well, hey, if we were afraid that if we mess up, that we might fall back under condemnation, that would be the greatest incentive to obey. No, it's not. The greatest incentive to obey is not fear, but love. When you understand the gospel, when you understand that you have been on the receiving end of this amazing mercy and love and that there could never be condemnation for you, that you are God's beloved child and that nothing could ever separate you from His love. When that's the conscious thought in your mind, the last thing that you want to do is hurt God. Sin against Him. We sin when we forget the gospel. <laughs> we sin when we forget, you know, how amazing His love really is. Okay, the greatest incentive for obedience is love. Okay, First John says we love. Why? Because He first loved us. The more that we understand how much we are loved, the response of our hearts and our lives is love for Him. And when we love Him. You know, the last thing we want to do is, is disobey. Okay, that's the conscious thought in our minds. So, Romans 8.1, far from being a license to sin, is actually the greatest incentive for obedience. Now, um, when this gets deep down in our lives, I mean, when we really get this, it changes life. It changes, every, it changes the way that we approach trials the way that we approach challenges, the way that we approach burdens. Okay, if the next time that you're facing, and you, some of you I'm sure are facing something today, a heavy burden, some trial, you know, something where you just, you know, it's, it's a weight on you, I want you to ask yourself this question. If I really believed that there is absolutely no condemnation for me, that I, that I am completely accepted by God as His child and that, that He's watching out for me, that nothing could ever separate me from His love, how would I think differently about this situation that I'm dealing with? 
This changes life when we really understand it. So, we are delivered from the legal guilt of sin. Second, we are, have experienced deliverance from the lingering power of sin. The deliverance from the lingering power of sin. He says in verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, when Paul uses the word law, he uses it in a couple of different ways. Okay, Sometimes he's talking about the Mosaic law of the Old Testament, as he is in verse 3, clearly. But sometimes when he uses the word law, he's using it in the sense of a binding authority or a, a force, a power. That's the way he's using it in verse 2. He's saying here that the, the power of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the power of sin and death. Before Christ, we were under the power of sin and death. We were helpless to obey. We stood condemned. And he's saying that now in the Spirit, we have been set free from that. Free not only from the legal guilt of sin, but, but we're being, we've been released from the power of sin. We have the power to live differently now, which is exactly what he says in Romans 6, verse 11. He says, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Again, in verse 14, he says, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. You are no longer slaves to sin. Some of us just got back from Haiti, where at one point the entire population of that nation was enslaved. What if the French were to come back to Haiti now, and they were to say to some of the precious people that we met there, um, you are enslaved, and they began to treat them as slaves. What, what would our Haitian friends say? They would say, excuse me? <laughs> You're living in the past. I am no longer your slave. That is the way that we should treat sin and temptation uh, and the enemy. We are new in Christ. We should think of ourselves as dead to sin but alive to God. I mean, we are new, new creations, no longer slaves to sin. We have been given the power to live differently. And so we've been granted deliverance not just from the legal guilt of sin, but the lingering power of sin. Now, third, how has God achieved this for us? These are incredible promises, right? Incredible deliverance. How did God make that happen? How has God achieved that for us? Verses 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, these are two heavy, theologically dense verses. Okay, So we're going we're to kind of unpack them and walk through them phrase by 
phrase. First of all, he says in verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Now he's talking here in verse 3 about the Mosaic law of the Old Testament. And he's saying that God has done what the law could not do. What was God's purpose for the law to begin with? Was it to take care of our sin problem? No. Paul tells us in Romans 3.20 what the purpose of the law was. It says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes what? Knowledge of sin. God's purpose in the law was not to, to take care of our sin problem. The law could not do that. God's intention for the law was to show us what sin is, okay, to reveal sin to us, to give us knowledge of sin. It could not take care of our sin problem. And he says it could not do that because it was weakened, weakened by the flesh. What is he talking about there? Well, the word flesh does not refer to your skin, <laughs> doesn't refer to your body at all. Okay, when he uses the word flesh here, he is he's not talking about our bodies. He's talking about our orientation toward sin. He's talking about our sin nature. He's talking about that orientation toward sin that we all share. Now, the law could not take care of that. <laughs> the law could not break that. So... What has God done? Let's keep walking through verse 3. It says, By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. God is just. God is righteous. Because He is righteous, because He is just, God could not wink at sin. God could not shove sin beneath the rug, you know, shove it in a closet and pretend like it doesn't exist. As a righteous, holy God, He had to deal with the problem of evil. Sin has to be condemned by a righteous, holy God. And He could have simply allowed us to take the condemnation. He would have been perfectly just in doing that. But God is not only just, God is love. And because He's love, He desired to save sinners. The question was, how could God save sinners in such a way that would not compromise His holiness and His righteousness and His need to condemn sin, evil? And this is what God said. God said, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to send the very self-expression of who I am, my son. He is going to come in the likeness of your sinful flesh, but without your sin. And that way he can die in your place for your sin. He is going to allow your sin to converge on him where it will be condemned so that you don't have to be. That is why there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Because our sin bearer, Jesus, has taken our condemnation. All of our sins converged on Him on the cross where it was condemned in our place. That's why there's no condemnation for us. Isaiah 53.5, speaking of Jesus, says He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this phrase, the righteousness of God, flows into what he's going to talk about in verse 4. He says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What is, what is he talking about there? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, some people, I'm not one of them, okay, some people interpret this phrase to mean that as Christians, we've been given the Holy Spirit. We now have the power to obey God. Very true. But they would say, they would go farther than that and say that this means that as now as Spirit-filled believers living for God that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in, in our behavior. <laughs> I can't go there. I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here. Um, first of all, that's just not honest about who we are, right? I mean, listen, even on our best days, we come far short of the righteous requirement of the law. Okay, uh, at our best, even, you know, I mean, as serious Christians who are trying our best to live for God, okay, we, we come short of what Paul is talking about here. Um, and we know that, right? We, we, we know that we're falling short. And, and the, the closer that we get to the Lord, the more aware of that we are, right? I mean, we, the, more, the closer that we get to God, the more acutely aware we are of our own sin. The, the more that we grow in Christ, the more sensitive we are to our own shortcomings, our own failures, our own sins. Is that not, not the case? I mean, when we get saved, some of the, lots of the things, lots of our external sins maybe get taken care of relatively quickly, but then comes the really hard work of all of these internal internal heart attitudes, you know. Um, and listen, if we're honest, I mean, we, we know that, I mean, even, even at, our, at our best, okay, we're, we're falling short of what he's talking about here. I, this is not talking about us somehow fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law in our own behavior. I, I don't think that's what he means. I agree with New Testament scholar Doug Moo, who says this about verse 4, the always imperfect obedience of the law by Christians does not satisfy what is being demanded by the logic of this text. Our obedience 
always fall short of that perfect obedience required by the law. Um, what chapter has Paul just finished writing before he gets in chapter 8? What's chapter 7 of Romans like? Paul's incredibly honest about the fact that even as serious Christians, we are still struggling with and often failing in that struggle with sin. So I certainly don't think that he can write Romans 7 and then turn around here and say that somehow through our own behavior that the righteous requirement of the law is going to be fulfilled in us. Um, and not only that, but the verb here in Greek, when it says he, that it might be fulfilled, it's passive. It's a passive verb, which means that he's not talking about something that we do. He is talking about something that has been done for us. See, what he means here, when he talks about the righteous requirement of the law being fulfilled, he's talking about Jesus. Right? He's talking about the perfect righteousness of Christ that is credited to us when we trust in Him. Again, Doug Moo, I think, is so on target here when he says, um, as our substitute, He, Jesus, satisfied the righteous requirement of the law, living a life of perfect submission to God, and laying upon Him the condemnation due all of us, God also made it possible, listen, for the righteous obedience that Christ had earned to be transferred to us. The law's just demand is fulfilled in Christians not through their own acts of obedience, but through their incorporation into Christ. He fulfilled the law, and in Him, Believers also fulfill the law perfectly so that they may be pronounced righteous, free from condemnation. In grasping Christ by faith, people are accounted as really having done the law. In other words, God regards you as a Christian as having fulfilled the law perfectly because you are united to the one who fulfilled it perfectly, Christ. Now this is what theologians refer to as the active obedience of Christ. That he lived the perfect life in our place. Many of you have heard me speak about one of my heroes, J. Gresham Machen. And in the 1920s, it was Machen's courageous stand for the truthfulness of the scriptures that really emboldened many other Christians to stand strong on the truth of God's word. He died on New Year's Day, 1937. He had, in late December, he left Westminster Seminary where he taught in Philadelphia, and he went on a preaching tour. He was actually in North Dakota preaching in these churches and he was stricken with pneumonia. And in the waning days of 1936, he was, he was in bed with pneumonia. He was dying. And by New Year's Day, 1937, it was obvious that he was going to die. 
And J. Gresham Machen, on his deathbed, he summoned the strength to send a telegram to one of his friends and colleagues back in Philadelphia, John Murray. And Machen said this from his deathbed, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. He died at 7.30 that night, the night that he wrote this. He died knowing that Jesus had lived the perfect life of obedience that he could never live and and that the the perfect righteousness of Christ had been credited to his account. He died knowing that Jesus Christ had died on the cross, had, 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 had suffered Sin had been condemned in Christ on the cross so that there would be no condemnation for Him. He died knowing that Jesus Christ had risen and that one day He too was going to be raised. Now I would ask you, friend, is the reality of those promises, is that reality for you? Do you know these things? Do you know them deep down? Is your life surging with peace and joy and confidence because you know these things? Paul finishes in verse 4 by saying who, of believers who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. You see, God has not only provided His perfect righteousness for us. He's not only uh, provided the the, the provision of, of Christ who was condemned in our place so that we don't have to be. But God has also provided us with His Spirit to give us the power to live differently day by day. Okay, And that's exactly where He is now transitioning in verses 5 and following. It's going to be a joy to walk through these things together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the glory of the gospel. Father, we, um, it's hard to even contemplate just the, the beauty, the, 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 the majesty of, of your grace, which is what, why it's so amazing. It sounds too good to be true, but it is true. <laughs> and we thank you that it's true. We thank you that as believers, that we have been delivered from the legal guilt of sin, the lingering power of sin, and we thank you for what you have done in the gospel to make all of that possible. We pray that these things would get down deep in us. We pray that as we walk through Romans 8, that, uh, that you, by your Spirit, would, would cause these things to, to, to uh, just be so built into us that it would change our lives every day just knowing that there is no condemnation for us. There is no separation from your love. Father, help us to live daily in the reality of that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and you've got spiritual questions, maybe you want to just talk with someone or pray with someone Uh, We want to be here for you. We want to serve you just in any way that we possibly can. Um, In just a moment as we stand and sing, um, I'll be here at the front. Uh, There are others here who can can talk with you. We'll be here after the service. Um, 
as well. If you're here and you just need to pray with someone, the altar is open for you to do that. Um, I'd love to pray with you. If you're here today and you say, you know, I want to um, seek membership in this church family um, and uh, be a part of what God is doing here, we invite you to step out and come as we stand and sing. Let's stand together. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.